Good morning, my friend. I hope you're doing well. It is early in the morning, about four, about five o'clock uh, on a Friday. I'm recording this a little in advance of self-brain surgery Saturday. You're going to hear this tomorrow, which uh, should be March the 10th, 2023. And Sandhill cranes are going nuts outside. You might hear them at some point. They're in the throes of the full migration here on our property. They seem to be about 10,000 of them that like to call our little Moon River Ranch home this time of year. And, and the it's a it's a just a fun thing to see and hear and it's really a cool spot here on the river. We're grateful to be able to see that every day. I'm excited today because I've got a special guest with us for self brain surgery Saturday to change the way you look at your worldview. Now I talk in my new book, Hope is the First Dose, I talk a little bit about worldview. Um and this German idea, this this word Weltanschauung, um, which is sort of your mystical thoughts about how you see the world okay but worldview is deeper than that bigger than that worldview is is really the lens through which you make decisions it's it's sometimes even subconsciously it's 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 just a whole set of things they kind of give you the ground rules for how you play the game of life and so along the context of worldview I read a book earlier this year called Faithfully Different by Natasha Crane. And Natasha Crane is an apologist. She's a a mother, a working writer, uh, and an in-demand public speaker. But she started writing, actually, uh, after a series of blog posts that gained some traction. They kind of dealt with culture and how you teach your kids about how to have a biblical worldview. And so she wrote... um, three books actually for kids for parents that were aimed at parents talking with your kids about jesus the baker books published that in 2020 talking with your kids about god again from baker in 2017 and the first one was keeping your kids on god's side harvest house published that in 2016 so she's had these three books that were so she was kind of known as this mom who wrote books for parents about how to teach your kids how to handle themselves in the current cultural climate with a biblical worldview so really helpful stuff Well, then she got kind of uh, almost internet famous for a post that she wrote challenging some of the cultural ideas that were going on. And after that, she decided, I need to write a book for everybody to talk about how to be different, how to, when Paul says we're living aliens and strangers in the world, what does that mean? And and why do do Christians need to behave differently and think differently and not just try to sort of assimilate ourselves into the culture, but also try to get to heaven, right? So this book that she wrote, Faithfully Different, Regaining Biblical Clarity in a Secular Culture, was released in February of last year. I didn't find it until January of this year, and I found it through Elisa Childers, who was on the podcast a while back on a Friday conversation. You should go back and listen to that one. Elisa Childers is another mom who was also a Christian singer, and she's written books to, to address this idea that the culture's giving us some ideas that just aren't true that turn out to not be true, Live Your Truth and Other Lies, is her most recent book. And she has a podcast that she does with a, with Natasha Crane. And so I started listening to them, and I really appreciate the fact that there are some young people, younger people, who are fighting this fight to stand up for what's true and what's right. And it can be helpful to you to understand. In fact, it's crucial to you, especially if you're a parent, to understand what's happening in culture and how it lines up with what the Bible says about who we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to see the world.
So I read Faithfully Different, Regaining Biblical Clarity in a Secular Culture, and I found it to be one of the best books of apologetics I've ever read. And I've read a lot of books defending the faith. But apologetics is the science, the branch of theology that's concerned with defending or proving the truth of Christian doctrine. So when you try to have a conversation with your agnostic friend, for example, if you have some apologetics training, if you've read some books and if you've done enough research and you understand what it is that you believe, that's how you get to where Paul said you can defend your faith. You, you can you can put out a, a ready defense of the things that you believe. And you ought to be able to, because I can guarantee you the people you run across in culture, they can readily defend why they think they believe what they believe. They've got a whole set of things that they believe justifies why they're living their truth, and you ought to kowtow to whatever it is that they believe. And the problem is when kids are being raised in schools where that stuff is taught just as a matter of fact, if you don't ground them and train them in a biblical worldview, then they're going to be really confused when they hear one thing at church or one thing at the dinner table with you and another thing from their teachers and their friends at school and another thing from the internet and social media and all of that. So it's our job as parents and grandparents and, and if you haven't had your children yet, it's your job ahead of time to know what it is that you believe and get really crystal clear on that and that the study of apologetics is the way we get there and so natasha's book faithfully different is extremely helpful it's very well written it's fun to read it's it's powerful and, and i just reached out to harvest house and said hey i'd love to have her on the podcast to talk about this book and these ideas and i think it would be really a helpful conversation and she wrote back and really graciously gave us almost an hour of her time here she's sought after public speaker she's in the middle of writing and, and a busy person but she took the time to sit down and talk to you and me today to talk about how we can be faithfully different in a secular age. And what does all that mean? Well, we're going to get after it in a few minutes. And the real bottom line of all of this is if you don't understand why you think and believe the things that you think and believe, then you're vulnerable. You're vulnerable to attack. You're vulnerable to erosion of your beliefs over time. You're vulnerable to assimilating into the culture instead of being faithfully different. I'm always telling you, you can't change your life until you change your mind. And one thing you have to change your mind about is to radically assess the things that you hold to and the things that you're hearing and line them up with scripture so you can change your mind back to the truth when you've drifted away from it. And, and it's so easy to do when we have some ideas that we've absorbed from the culture and when they're not necessarily in line with what the truth is. Jesus said, you will know the truth, the truth, and the truth will set you free. So the question is, if your truth isn't setting you free, then maybe it's time to reassess and line it back up with the truth. And Natasha Crane's going to help us get there. And the good news, as Lisa always tells us, is that we can start today. Hey, are you ready to change your life? If the answer is yes, there's only one rule. You have to change your mind first. And my friend, there's a place where the neuroscience of how your mind works smashes together with faith and everything starts to make sense. That place is called self-brain surgery. You can learn it and it will help you become healthier, feel better, and be happier. And the good news is you can start today. Thanks, Lisa. Hey, so glad to have you listening today. I'm Dr. Lee Warren, and I live in Nebraska in the United States of America with my incredible wife, Lisa, my father-in-law, Tata, and the super pups, Harvey and Lewis. I'm a neurosurgeon and an author, and I'm here to help you harness neuroscience, the power of your brain, faith, the power of your spirit, and good old common sense to help you lead a healthier, better, happier life. Listen, friend, you can't change your life until you change your mind, and I'm here to help you learn the art of self-brain surgery to get it done. If you'd like the show, 
please subscribe so you never miss an episode and tell your friends about it. If you tell two or three friends this podcast was helpful to you, imagine how much good we can all do around the world together. I'm Dr. Lee Warren, and I'm here to help you change your mind so you can change your life. Let's get after it. Okay, friend, we're back. I'm so excited to introduce you to one of my favorite uh, writers now. Natasha Crane is here with us on the show today. Welcome, Natasha. Thanks so much. It's great to talk with you. Good to talk with you and glad to have you. You're in a warmer spot than I am. You're in Southern California, right? I am. Southern California. The one thing we have going for us here is the weather. That is for sure. That's right. We had, <laughs> I think it was five weeks in a row that it didn't get above freezing this winter. So we're, oh. you're warmer than we are. So we, we get a little rain and hail here, you know, in like the last week that happened and everyone yeah. kind of loses their mind. No one knows how to drive in it. No one knows how to function. Everyone buckles down under heated blankets. So <laughs> we, we get soft here. That's right. Tell us a little bit about um, your your sort of upbringing and your, and your faith, your 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 Christian heritage, and all of that. Before we just to set the tone for who you are and, and how you think as a writer. So. Yeah, well, I I'm one of those Christians who grew up in a Christian home, so I don't have the moment where I came to know the Lord as an adult because of some kind of dramatic event or anything like that. I remember being four years old and getting on my knees next to my bed with my mom, and we prayed together that I would follow Jesus wow. and have Jesus in my heart. It's funny because I actually don't remember much from that period of my life, you know, little kid memories, but that stands out to me. So there was something that was important to me in that moment yeah. for sure, but I didn't understand everything obviously, but that kind of planted the seeds that would lead to my spiritual journey later. And, you know, I, I grew up spending hundreds of hours in church, went to church my whole childhood, had a Christian family, but still when I left home, I I would say I had a nominal faith because I didn't fully understand all the implications of it. I didn't understand how Christianity is not just something that you believe on the side, like a suitcase of beliefs, but it is the lens through which we should all be seeing reality from what the Bible teaches. And so it took me quite a while, even though I prayed when I was four, to really grasp the depth of what it means to be a Christian. I don't know if any of us can ever completely grasp that, but uh, definitely deepened my faith over time. And especially as I had kids, then you say, I better, I better be really serious about my faith. So I, uh, I have two 14 year olds and I have a 12 year old now. Nice. And you, as a writer, so you had a background in marketing, right? So you were in business right. and, and marketing. We'll get into some of that stuff later as it ties into your, your book, Faithfully Different, uh, which is the book we're talking about today, Faithfully Different. Um, Regaining Biblical Clarity in a Secular Culture. It's a really important book. I've been telling my um, listeners about it for a while, and I'm, I'm just really grateful that you took the time to be with us today. But so that, that idea of being coming out of marketing and then getting into parenting, you started writing books that were kind of aimed at, at mothers and parenting, right? Right. So I started out writing specifically for parents, and I actually didn't set out to be a writer or a speaker at all. So back in 2011, I decided to start a Christian parenting blog. I had three kids, three and under at the time. (laughs) So it was one of those things that I thought, you know, I just want to do something a little bit different on the side. And so I decided that I was going to start this blog just for fun. I didn't know anything about the things that I talk about now, about worldview, apologetics, any of these subjects. I just started it for fun and to connect with other Christian parents online. And so as I started that blog, 
people were reading it and they started sharing it. It started growing in popularity, just writing about things like songs we were singing and devotions we were doing, things like that. But somehow it attracted a bunch of skeptics to start coming to my site. And they were challenging all of the things that I was saying. They were saying that I was indoctrinating my kids. They were saying there's no evidence that God exists. They said that the Bible's filled with errors and contradictions. The science has disproven God. I mean, the list goes on. And even though I spent those hundreds of hours in church, I had never heard those kinds of challenges. You know, it wasn't like today where kids hear the challenges really early on. I mean, I I didn't hear these challenges. I wasn't surrounded by them. I didn't have social media because this was before that time. And so for me to encounter that for the first time was really kind of jarring. And I thought my kids are growing up in a completely different world than the one in which I grew up. I don't know how to answer this. And so basically, long story short, I dug into looking for answers to the questions that I was getting on my blog, or rather the claims and assertions that I was getting on my blog. And I went on an intense reading journey. And through that process, I ended up writing about those questions on my blog and telling Christian parents, hey, here's the kind of stuff that our kids are going to hear. I've been looking into it. Here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to talk about. So mm-hmm. that's kind of the long answer to your question, how I got into this, because eventually the blog kind of exploded from that process and a publisher reached out and said, hey, what if you were to take 40 of these questions and write some succinct answers to them for parents. That became my first book. And then everything kind of grew out from there. So that's when I switched over from marketing to saying, you know what, I'm going to be a full-time mom and write and speak as I'm able. Wow. So the the publisher came to you. (laughs) You It was an unusual circumstance. Yes. That's amazing. That's my, my foray into writing was, um, I had gone to Iraq and gotten blown up a bunch and got PTSD and 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 started um, emailing these letters home uh, that ended up getting forwarded around all over the world. And by the time I came home, I had twenty five or thirty thousand people that were reading these emails from the war zone, wow. and I I just put them all together in a in a self published book for my family. My wife said basically, you got to in order to get well, you're going to have to journal and write mm-hmm. and all that. So we did that. And Philip Yancey got a hold of it, and he wrote me a letter, called me actually, and said, "These stories are important, but you don't know how to write. Like if you if you want to tell the story, you need to write better." And so I took a year and, and wrote it as a book, and and he introduced me to an agent. And so that's interesting how sometimes we don't see that coming, do we? Not at all. And it's funny. I got to tell you, I, I after we kind of made this this contact about the podcast, I read your mo- most recent book, not the one you mm-hmm. have coming out, but the most recent one. I've seen the end of you and loved, loved, loved the book. And I remember mm-hmm. you talking about that and saying uh, that you were told like you couldn't write. But I spent <laughs> that book thinking, wow, he's a, this guy's a really good writer. It was very compelling. I mean, I read your book in a couple of days, not because it was easy or light, but because I was just so compelled by what you had to say. So uh, I, I, you must have come a long way if someone told you, or if Philip Yancey himself told you that you couldn't write. You've come a long way because I, I love the book and I thought it was really well written. Well, thank you. There's, there's two novels in my bedroom drawer that <laughs> the learning curve <laughs> where that came from. That's amazing. Well, so I want to talk for a second about you, you in in 2020, all this blogging and all this writing that you had done, but aimed at parents. And, and in 2020, you wrote a blog post about basically worldview right and and it kind of went nuts and so talk about that for a second like that that was sort of the switch for you where you went from writing parenting books to ending up writing this amazing book faithfully different that we're talking about today 
Yeah, that really was a switch for me. So in 2020, when all the social chaos started going on that summer, I saw so much online that was happening where people were linking arms with a lot of concepts and movements and ideas that were really more secular in nature than biblical. And so I decided to kind of step out of that parenting lane, which I had tried really hard to stay in and just, you know, I used to say, oh, I don't do anything outside of parenting, but I decided, you know, I have something to say about this. So I wrote this blog post called Five Ways Christians Are Getting Swept into a secular worldview in this cultural moment. And this post went viral. It was liked and shared tens of thousands of times, and it went all over the internet. And it was interesting because I received emails from weeks, um, plenty pushback for sure, but with a lot of thank yous from people who are saying, I knew something wasn't quite right with the kinds of stuff that I'm seeing going around around me, people at my church and my small group and my friends, but I didn't know how to put my finger on it. So thank you for saying these things. And so that encouraged me to write some more posts about what was going on and how really secular perspectives were getting blended into a biblical worldview for a lot of Christians. And so that led me to realize, you know, there's there's a need for more writing about secularism as a worldview and how it is affecting people's biblical worldview. And ultimately, that led me to write Faithfully Different, which is all about, as you said in the subtitle, regaining biblical clarity in a secular culture. Well, that's, that's amazing. Let's talk for a second about the concept of worldview. I wrote a little bit about it in my new book. The, the, the German word is Weltanschauung, this sort of mystical contemplation of how we, the lens through which we see the world. So talk a little bit about worldview and then maybe what secular versus a Christian worldview would be, because they're different. And I think it's important that we notice that we, that we know that they're different so that we know how to engage with them. So talk about worldview a little bit, Natasha. Yeah, so if somebody hasn't heard that word before, a worldview is basically a person's beliefs about the nature of reality. So we all have a worldview. It's how we answer questions like, where did we come from? Why are we here? Is there an objective purpose? Where are we going? Is there a God? It's those basic questions about reality. Most of us, a lot of people do not form that worldview in a conscious way. So the average person, if you pull them over on the street and they say, hey, what's your worldview? And you know, how much time have you spent thinking about it? (laughs) They're going to be like, what's a worldview? So it's not like we all sit down in kindergarten along with our basic math and kind of figure out that worldview. By and large, people pick up those answers for themselves over time in lots of different ways and in lots of different places. But the important thing to understand is that everyone has a worldview, whether they realize it or not. Everyone has those answers to questions. And it's not just this philosophical concept. This has many implications for our everyday lives because what you believe to be true about the nature of reality fundamentally shapes what you do with your life, how you live your life. And so worldview is a critical concept. No, as Christ followers, what should our worldview be? Well, it should be based on what the Bible teaches. We would want our beliefs and our behaviors to line up with the Bible. So that's what we would call a biblical worldview. And uh, just to give a couple of statistics that I think are really important, 65% of people in today's uh, America say that they are Christians. So they self-identify as Christians. If you give them a list of things and say, hey, you know, how do you affiliate? 
a Mormon, Jewish, Christian, et cetera, 65%. But other research shows if you don't ask people, hey, what do you call yourself? And instead you give them dozens of questions to ask what they believe about various things that would be taught in the Bible about the nature of God, for example, and who Jesus was, these kinds of questions. And then the researchers put those answers together to say, okay, well, this would be consistent with this worldview here. This is consistent with this one over here. You find 6% in America have a biblical worldview with beliefs and behaviors overwhelmingly lining up with what the Bible teaches. So we have this huge gap, the 65% who identify as a Christian and 6% who have a biblical worldview. So that's kind of the the status of the biblical worldview in America. And you ask, well, okay, how does that differ from secularism? Well, those same researchers, they don't just look to see how do people have a how many people have a biblical worldview. They say, well, what are all these other worldviews that people have? What they find is that 88% of people have a worldview that's just gathered from various pieces of different places over time that don't logically fit together. In other words, 88% of people in America have an incoherent worldview because we don't consciously develop our worldview so often. And so, for example, someone might say, oh, I believe that there's an all-loving, all-knowing God, but I also believe that, you know, reincarnation's true. Well, those things don't don't fit together if you also claim to believe in the Bible because the Bible very clearly teaches that you have one life to live and then you will be judged. And so that's what I think of those pieces of puzzles where people are just grabbing pieces from different worldview puzzles without checking to see, do these actually work together logically, consistently, coherently? And ultimately, the the ending point to this long answer to your question is that there's one thing that functionally ties the worldviews of millions of people together, that 88% who believe all kinds of different stuff, and that is that they look to the authority of themselves rather than the authority of God. So that's that's the key, and that's what I would call secularism. Secularism doesn't necessarily tell you somebody wouldn't necessarily say, "Oh, you know, I believe in God," and someone else, you know, has the exact same beliefs. Secularism is just this idea that everyone's looking to themselves as the authority about what's true about reality. That's right, and that's that's a uh, ultimately goes back to this notion that there is is or is not something that's absolutely and always true, right? Right. So uh, people don't want to believe that there is an independent objective reality outside of themselves. That's what this comes down to. It comes back to, I'm the one who determines what's good or bad or right or wrong, helpful, harmful. I'm the one. It's what I feel. It's my feelings are the guide to this rather than, hey, regardless of how I feel about something, there's an external, objective, independent truth outside of me. And so as Christians with a biblical worldview, our authority comes from the unchanging nature of God and what he has revealed to us through his word. And that, if you're going to trust in the Bible, and if you're going to trust in God, that comes first, not how we feel. That's exactly right. This 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 concept of truth being relative or shifting over time or changing based on the opinions of the largest number of people, that's really where, where if we're not attached to a solid worldview, then we can basically fall prey to anything, any idea, as long as it's popular, right? And you get into you talking about virtue signaling and those kinds of things that I think we should talk about in a minute. But before we get too far away from it, you 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 give us basically four 
sort of tenets of a secular worldview that, that are important. And I think we need to talk about them because it becomes so widely accepted in culture that even Christians think that they're true. And so I think it's important to just, let's articulate those for a second. Um, the, the four statements that you give us, feelings are the ultimate guide, happiness is the ultimate goal, judging is the ultimate sin, and God is the ultimate guest. Just talk about those four things for a second for us. Yeah, so my objective in putting those in the book was really to say, hey, culture believes all kinds of different things. We can kind of lump all those beliefs together with these commonalities in that people look to the authority of themselves. But is there a way we can identify that self-based authority in some way? And so that's why I suggest these are the four things that no matter what somebody believes about their answers to all kinds of questions, there's going to be this commonality if your authority is yourself. So the first thing is that your feelings are going to be your guide. If you don't have an external authority, if you don't have revealed scripture, for example, that you're looking to as being authoritative, then what's going to lead you, it's going to be how you feel. So we see this in culture all the time with things like follow your heart or be your authentic self. I mean, anything geared at teenage girls, I have a teenage girl, so I see this stuff, anything geared toward them, it's all about, hey, you know, find yourself, figure out who you are and what your identity is. And But it's all, it's not find out what objectively your identity is. It's figure out what you feel about yourself. It's not just teen girls. I mean, we see this marketed at people all over culture culture, but it, you see it especially in that that teenage zone, I think. But it, the point is, is that when you see a mug somewhere that says, follow your heart or, you know, be your authentic self, those aren't just harmful, harmless little statements on these things. Those are actually the tip of an entire worldview iceberg that's yeah. really based on the authority of the self. We don't feel follow our feelings. We follow God as Christians. The heart is a sequel right. above all things. The second thing, happiness is the ultimate guide. Well, if feelings are your, if they are what are, um, or I'm sorry, if happiness is the ultimate goal, feelings are your guide toward that goal. So mm-hmm. happiness, you hear this all the time in culture too. How often do we hear somebody, oftentimes a celebrity will stand up and say, Hey, I had an abortion these many years before and now I'm happy. It yeah. allowed me to be happy because I was able to follow my heart and I was able to pursue these career dreams and now I'm happy. Mm-hmm. And when these things are stated in culture, it's said almost like a mic drop moment. Right. It's almost like everyone is yep. expected to just go, Oh, well, she's happy. <laughs> you know, if somebody's happy, then everybody is expected to say, Okay, well, everything must be fine. Happiness is that goal for people in culture today. As Christians, that's not our ultimate goal. It, it's, right. e- it's easy to think, Oh, I'm not happy. Something's wrong. But hey, there are a lot of circumstances that can make us feel unhappy in the moment. And God doesn't say, you need to get out of that. You're not feeling happy. Oh my gosh, you know, something's got to change. I mean, think about everything Paul went through, everything that the disciples went through. I mean, I've just been reading Matthew 10 this morning and Jesus is sending out the 12 disciples talking about persecution and everything that's going to happen to them and being brought before governors and kings. I mean, he didn't tell them, you know, if you feel unhappy, you better get out of that situation. No, our goal in life is to know God and make God known. And in that process, we have an unending and tethered joy to an eternal truth that is different than those wavering moments of happiness. So happiness is not the ultimate goal. The the third thing is that judging is the ultimate sin in secular culture. This makes total sense, right? If your authority is yourself, according to someone with a secular worldview, 
if someone comes along and says, hey, you should do this or that, or I think you're wrong about this or that, you're going to say, who are you to judge? Who are you to tell me something's wrong? I'm the authority on my life. I'm the one who determines what's true for me. Don't come along and judge me. So it makes sense within that worldview context. And then finally, God is the ultimate guest. What I mean by that is that secular culture is overwhelmingly okay with someone believing that God exists. A lot of times people think, oh, secular means godless. It means atheist. It doesn't at all. Someone who's secular, I mean, the research shows 90% of people in America believe in God or some kind of higher power. So most people do believe someone or something is out there. What's not okay is for you to claim that you can know with confidence who that God is. Because if we as Christians say, hey, there's really good reason. There's evidence to show that not only does God exist, but that the Bible is true, and therefore he's revealed who he is and who we are and how we're to relate to him, what's required of us, and what's true about morality. Oh, wow, now you're going to offend people because now God's not just a guess where everyone's kind of on equal footing to say, oh, I think God's like this or like that. Now you're claiming we can actually know something with confidence about him. In other words, the authority is no longer yourself. That's right. That's exactly right. And it, even even the notion that we're not supposed to judge that that's because we've allowed the de- definition of judgment to be co-opted because we are supposed to look out for each other and help each other and sharpen each other and point each other towards truth and and if we get to where nobody can call anybody else out then then we we've, we've lost the ability to to shepherd one another, right? And to help each other make it through this tough life. That, that these are four really important points that you made in the book and I think Four things that we're afraid to talk about in context of how Christians are supposed to live in a culture but not be stained by the world, as Paul said, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I love what you said about the language kind of getting co-opted. A lot of times Christians, when they hear me talk about this, will say, well, but aren't we not supposed to judge? I mean, Matthew 7, 1, Jesus says, do you not judge or you too will be judged. But that's an often misunderstood point because you have to read the rest of that passage when he's saying that. That's the prelude to a whole passage on not judging hypocritically. He says to take the log out of your eye, and here are the important words, so that you can see clearly to take the the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Yep. He doesn't say, take the log out and walk away. You shouldn't judge. He wants you to see clearly so that you can judge with right judgment, as he sells, says elsewhere. So it that's is really right. important to understand the language because that's where Christians will get confused when secularists say, you know, judging is bad. Christians think, yeah, judging is bad. I think ju- Jesus said not to judge, right? And so we start all believing the right. same thing as a secular culture, but that's not the case. As long as when we say judgment, we're talking about discernment, discerning between what's right and wrong and good and bad, then we are absolutely, biblically speaking, to judge. What we're not supposed to do is to condemn someone. In other words, think that we have some kind of final say on their life. God is the ultimate judge in that case, and that is what we are told not to do. That's exactly right. Your first one, the, the feelings are the ultimate guide. I'm going to give you a, a little, a little self brain surgery freebie. So we, we talk about on my, on my podcast and, and my readers all the time about this concept of, of self brain surgery. And, and the, and the, the gig behind that is that, uh, we know from neuroscience that you, you literally can change the chemical environment of your brain by changing the things that you think about, right? Which is what Paul told us 2000 years ago by thinking about better things, you have less anxiety and better lives. But what we've learned is 
what I teach people is feelings aren't facts, they're chemical events in your brain, right? So mm. you think that what you feel is true, but what you feel is a hormonal response designed to keep you from burning your hand on the stove or to keep you from doing the same thing you've done a hundred times that's been harmful to you. So if you, if you, if we can learn that feelings aren't facts, they're just chemical events in our brains and we can control what we feel and influence it by changing how we think, then that's how we allow the Holy Spirit to drive us around life more effectively. So I call that self-brain surgery because you're literally changing how your brain works if you can learn that you're not a slave to your feelings. That's great. I love that. And, you know, sometimes people think when, when they hear this kind of conversation that we're saying feelings are bad in some way. And, and that's not the point. Like you just made a very important point there and saying feelings are going to prevent you from getting hurt and from reacting in certain situations. Feelings are not bad. God gave us feelings. Right. And he designed us this way so that we have feelings that can point us towards certain events in our lives and responses. But feelings are not the priority. They are not the ultimate guide to truth. And so I think that's the key distinction there. That's right. And they don't actually lead you. Th- these decisions that we make through those secular statements that you made don't actually produce happiness in people's lives because the target keeps moving. And that's what mm-hmm. I was my wife and I were having a conversation this morning, Lisa and I, about if if you have your truth versus the truth, then does your truth set you free? Because Jesus said, you know, that the truth will set you free. And you can look at people's lives and see everybody that that says I'm pursuing my own truth, they're always outraged. They're constantly upset and offended because if, if I don't honor your truth and I don't see it the way you do and you don't honor my truth, then we're just mad at each other all the time. <laughs> but if we're both right. trying to honor the truth, something that never changes, and we're both trying to modify our, and model our lives after that, it actually produces happiness, So, which is the one thing that everybody thinks they're going after, right? Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because there's been so many, um, there's uh, articles recently that's been talking about, uh, teenage girls and the depression that so many teenagers are feeling today. And I look at that through a biblical worldview lens and I'm just thinking, how can they not see that if you change the whole narrative of a society, and you change it so that everything is about your truth, like you're talking about. And, you know, it's all on you to figure out who you are and your truth. And there's nothing external that's a tether for you. How do you think that you're going to change that and then not see these implications? This is what we're seeing playing out today. The worldview of society has overwhelmingly shifted. We're seeing a generation growing up in that. And now they see the results of that kind of thinking. They're seeing that all of these kids are significantly depressed and suicide rates are up. I mean, there's so much that's going on in terms of mental illness and mental challenges for kids today, I think it's a direct result of these worldview changes. There's so much pressure on kids to think that, oh, I've got to find out my own truth and my own reality that they don't have anything stable underneath them anymore. And I, I think you're seeing the the logical playing out of what happens when that becomes a new worldview of society. That's right. And I think that's why the Holy Spirit is raising up a generation of of writers and theologians and and lay people who are apologists and all that because you're going to have the answers to the world's troubles are going to come through the church. I mean that that's what he's always said that the, the church is not going to fall. The church is not going to end. The, the, all this scary stuff that's happening in culture isn't going to wipe out the kingdom of God. And the in the the salvation of the world is going to come through him. And so if we can 
we can just sit by and watch the Holy Spirit is going to raise up people to serve his purposes. And that's what your book's doing. I mean, that's the work that you're doing is, is part of that work of the Holy Spirit. And I'm, and I'm grateful that we're talking about it today. And I think that it's interesting. We'll pivot to marketing because your background, Natasha, was in marketing. So it's how to sell products to people that they will buy, right? And you wrote a great, in your chapter 12 of your book, you, you talked brilliantly about this AIDA, ADA idea, and how that relates to virtue signaling. So talk to us about that for a second, because nobody that's listening right now has forgotten that in 2020, if you scrolled through Instagram for five minutes, you saw a hundred people with the same posts, the same graphic. Everybody was posting the same stuff. I support this. I believe this. Here's the color of the, of the day on, on my, my platform. And, and that was all about signaling to the world things that we agree that we should support or that are good, right? So talk about ADA and marketing and virtue signaling and those things. I think it's it's really important. Yeah. So, um, so virtue signaling has a lot of different connotations depending on the person who's using it. So maybe just, just start with a little bit of a definition there in the way that I'm yep. using it. Uh, so, sometimes when people say, oh, they're just virtue signaling, it's a derogatory way of saying, oh, they don't actually practice what they're preaching. They That's just right. want to sound good publicly. I, when I use the word, I'm using a more basic definition because I'm not reading into anyone's intentions. I don't want to start, you know, teasing all that apart. I don't think that we can, right. only God knows the heart. When I say virtue signaling, I'm just talking about the fact that there are a lot of people today who feel that it's important to state what they believe about a given issue publicly and that they believe that that's the morally right position to have. And so this is kind of what I what I mean by virtue signaling. So the question is why from a secular perspective does that matter? You might hear me use that definition and say, well, aren't Christians supposed to share truth? Well, absolutely. And so as Christians, yeah. we would know why we're going to share a position that we agree with morally publicly because we are called to be salt and light. So yeah, in a sense, we are virtue signaling. We're putting out what we believe to be virtuous publicly. So I'm not saying virtue signaling in itself is a problem. I'm asking a question. I'm saying, why is it that from a secular perspective where everyone just has their own truth and it's all about the authority of the self, why do you feel it's important to put out your position publicly? Yeah. So it's, a, it's an important question to ask. And so here's how I answer it. My background, like you said, is in marketing. And there is this model that marketers have used for over a hundred years, the ADA model that really is like a funnel process. And it's about psychology. What does it take to get someone to get to product buy-in? Now, if you're grabbing a stick of gum at the store, you're not going to go through this process. It's an impulse purchase. You just grab the gum, right? But if you're going to buy a car, marketers know that you're going to go through a series of changes kind of in your mentality, this funnel process. It starts with awareness. So you're not going to buy the car unless you're first aware of it. For some people who become aware of it, they'll then go to the next stage of becoming interested in it. For some people who become interested in it, they'll go to the next stage of desiring to buy it. And of those people who desire to buy it, they'll actually take the action of buying it. So that's A-I-D-A. That's where we get this, this word ADA. And so when I transitioned from marketing, I realized, you know, this is a really powerful model for explaining how a lot of things happen, even within a ministry context, but within how the secular culture markets morality. How do yeah. you change how people think about what is good and bad and right and wrong as we're seeing in culture today? Well, instead of product buying, it's sort of like a 
moral marketing process. It's a moral buy-in of various issues that we see today. And so you go through this process of changing the awareness that people have of an issue, which is where you start changing the language. We see how words like equality and diversity and equity have been changed Tolerance, yes, exactly, to mean something different. Well, that's the top of that marketing funnel. That is the very first part of the process to get people to think differently. You change the language and activists know that you're changing how people think. That's why you have to keep, as a secularist, putting things out, virtue signaling that you're talking about things in a different language. I, this has been, I'm, might be doing my next podcast on this because this has been top of mind for me, but everything that you see right now in the news calls the, all the transgender surgeries gender-affirming care for teenagers. Yep. Think about that word care. <laughs> you, I, I bet you feel pr- pretty strongly about this given what you yeah. do. The word care and abortion is called health care. We continually see these words about care. And that's not what it is. Abortion is killing an unborn child. And gender-affirming care is putting kids on things like puberty blockers or physically changing their bodies for a lot of reasons that are very harmful physically and emotionally. So that's at the top part of the the funnel. I think that's important to understand today because when you see language and you're reading that going, this is not healthcare. Why are they talking about like this? It's very strategic. This is how it happens because as soon as you get it into people's minds that this is healthcare, as just one example, people will start thinking differently toward moral buy-in. So that's that's the, that's that first part of the funnel. And then the second one, as it relates to moral marketing is normalization. So once you get people thinking differently and framing that differently, thinking of it more positively, then you want to convince people that it's normal. And the reason, and this is honestly, it's funny because like when you write a book, you probably know this, you have your own favorite parts of of your own book. This is my, this is the most important thing I think to understand in the whole book, aside from the whole authority of the self. But the reason normalization is such an important thing for people to get to is that if you have no objective moral standard, you have nothing outside of yourself other than your own truth, then the closest thing you can get to a moral standard is to drive the popular consensus that this thing is morally good. That's right. It's the moral consensus. You can't, you have no objective moral standard. You've thrown that out the door. You've thrown out the existence of God or you believe in God, but you've thrown out the authority of scripture and you've just said, well, God's a guess. So what are you going to do? If you want to make abortion, for example, normalized, then you can't say this is good without giving some kind of reason for that because you don't have your objective standards. So what are you going to do? You're going to get lots of people on board. So popular moral consensus serves as a proxy for the new moral standard from a secular perspective. And so that is why the virtue signaling becomes more important. As you go through that funnel, you've started by reframing language And now you're going to talk about just how normal this thing is to do, because certainly if everyone's doing it, it must be okay. That's the logic. It must be good. We're going to keep talking about how normal it is until everyone believes normal is good. And then the final step in the process is celebration. And that is when you've gone from from reframing the language and then you've gotten people from reframing into believing it's normal and then from normal to saying not only is it okay, it's normal and good, but it's worth celebrating. This is what we see with something like Drag Queen Story Hour, for example, today. I use that example in the book that, hey, not only is this so good, something we're celebrating even with children this young. 
So it's uh, it's an interesting process, I think, to think that secular morality is actually being marketed at us. And it follows the exact same path that a marketer would use to get people to buy a product like a car. It's amazing. And, you know, if it, if this were a political podcast, I might make a point. <laughs> that, if my wife's always telling me, stay in your lane, stay out of politics. So <laughs> the, the idea would be if, if, if you were really cynical, you might think about it in this way. If I can get a bunch of different groups to focus on the things that identify them as parts of that group and to be offended by everybody else and everything else that doesn't honor that thing, then I could probably promise them a few things around election time every few years and get them to to vote for me and keep me in power by keeping them offended and focused on these things, right? That's a pretty, that'd be a pretty powerful it approach sure to marketing your politics, wouldn't it? Yeah, it absolutely would. And, and that's obviously what we see going on a lot today. And it's funny because even though at the end of the day, they're just looking for a popular moral consensus and they're, they don't have an objective moral sta- uh, standard, as soon as they get the popular moral consensus, they treat that like an objective standard, even yeah. though philosophically, there are no philosophical underpinnings to that whatsoever, right. but they treat it like an objective moral standard. So then they can turn around and say, hey, Christians, you're, you're really going to say this isn't okay. You're really going, you really hold these toxic, harmful beliefs about the why nature so of hateful? reality. Yeah. Yeah. Why are you so hateful in your beliefs? Maybe you haven't even said a word. I'm, a lot of Christians today are experiencing that, that people cut them off just because of what they believe. You're toxic. Well, Okay, there, how can you treat an and something that's not objective, that's just popular moral consensus as an objective moral standard? You can't. It doesn't logically make sense. It's philosophically inconsistent. That's no right. one cares. It's just we're going to get a groupthink, mob-like mentality together and say, well, here's what we've all agreed is okay. No, that standard's not all outside of ourselves, but we don't care. This is what we believe today as a society. And if you're on the outside of that as Christians, then you're bad. We don't have an objective standard for calling you bad, but you're bad. You're toxic. You're harmful. And politicians, if this were a political podcast, politicians would use that and be able to pit people against one another because no one's thinking about their worldview. No one's thinking about whether it's consistent or not. And and that's part of why I do what I do in writing and speaking is to try to get people to think more deeply about these things so that Christians are prepared to be able to explain this and to see the problems with it. Now you nailed it. You landed the plane right there. I mean, that's exactly what your book does. And, and, and the idea that most of us aren't thinking about our worldview and we're not thinking about the fact that everything is being marketed to us all the time. And that's, we had a, I had a guest on a couple of months ago. Her name is Annie Grace and she wrote a book called This Naked Mind, which is about alcohol. And it's about the way that society has so normalized alcohol that it's it's really the only drug that you get peer pressure for not using, <laughs> right? It's just normal for everybody to drink at every event. And what she's talked about was that this – she has a marketing background too, interestingly, and she talked about how alcohol advertising works. And she said there's a phrase, you don't sell the product or the product's product. You sell the product's product product. And so you don't sell – Alcohol, that'd be hard to sell. You don't sell getting woozy or getting drunk. You sell how popular and how many dates you get and how many business deals you close and how fun the parties are and how you're, you're the life of the party if you drink this whatever, right? So I think that's exactly what you just described. And in the book, you, in one of your recent podcasts, you talked about how we've marketed 
the the abortion issue, for example. We've changed the name of the thing inside the uterus to being a fetus instead of a person, and we and now that's accepted. And now we've changed the it's 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 not only a good thing; it can make you happy. And it's so fun and so happy that we can put it on Saturday Night Live and have a clown talk about it. And to tell that story, that was stunning to me. I hadn't seen it. And when you mentioned it in your podcast, I went and watched it and it broke my heart. But talk about what happened yeah. on Saturday Night Live. That, that's, that's a great example of this point. Yeah, this was a few months back. I think it was in, um, do you remember the date? I think it was November of 21. So it's, it's been a little bit. Yeah. yeah, I think it's been a little bit. But I, it is hard to watch. I mean, I I actually cried during a Saturday Night Live skit because it was so just disturbing. But basically, one of the cast members had dressed up like a clown. And this character was called Goober the Clown. And Goober the Clown, according to the skit, had had an abortion when she was 23. And so now she is uh, helping people talk about abortion and making it easier to talk about it while telling clown jokes and she and in it wasn't that she was acknowledging that hey this is a tough subject to talk about she was saying that this is a rough subject to talk about because people have made it so hard to talk about i don't know why they've made it so hard to talk about but i'm gonna be here in a clown suit and i'm gonna tell clown jokes just to make it a little easier to talk about how normal this is and that was the message of the entire skit was how normal abortion is and how often you know and how many people and these kinds of things and so that was an ultimate example of someone or an entire show trying to normalize abortion. It's so normal. So many people do this that we can even clown around about it literally and tell these jokes because it happens to, or doesn't happen, but everyone makes these choices. So, you know, it's not something that is promoted as safe, legal, and fair or whatever that the phrase used to be. You know, it is something that is normal and normal has to be good. That's that's the implication. And just logically speaking, a lot of times I try to emphasize just the logic. When we're not even talking about worldviews, we're not even talking about, well, who's right? Is it the atheist? Is it the Christian? Is it the Mormon? Not even talking about that. Let's just talk about what what is logical, just yeah. logic here. Normal doesn't always mean good. A lot of times things are normal on average for a society, but that doesn't mean that those things are good. And I, I think that that's just one of those things. That if you kind of stop in conversations with non-believers, maybe you're talking to someone who comes from that different perspective, and they say something like, "Well, you know, abortion really is normal. Like so many women have had them. Research shows this. A lot of Christian women have had them. So, you know, everyone everyone has had an abortion or know someone who's had an abortion. It, it is pretty normal." This is an opportunity not to convince someone Christianity is true per se, but an opportunity to say, well, I think there are a lot of examples of things in our society that are normal but aren't necessarily good. And by God's grace, there are plenty of things that both Christians and non-believers would agree are not good, like poverty or homelessness or racism or any of the things that are hot-button topics today that people can say, yeah— that's that's not a good thing. We can agree on that. We might have very different justifications for that or philosophical religion, uh, religious reasons for that, but we can agree at the end of the day, those aren't good. So normal does not mean good. It's a starting point that's, for conversation. That's exactly right. Now, I, I promised you 30 minutes. We're, we're at 42. We're a little past the, 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 the zone here, but I, I want to make sure that, that my listener, the, the person out there hearing us today understands why this is so important. So I want to, I want you to give us, give us just a little bit as we finish up here, Natasha. On, I'm always telling people, you can't change your life until you change your mind. Like there are some things that you need to change your thinking about. And this is one of those things. Why, 
does the average listener out there, wherever they are today, why do they need to change their mind about worldview and why do they need to care about it? And why does it matter? Like if you're a parent or a grandparent, why, why does this really matter? Why, why is this not just some academic sort of high level philosophical conversation two smart people are having here? Why does this matter to Lola out there in Kentucky or Brian out there in North Carolina that's listening today? Well, uh, if you're a Christian and you believe that Jesus is who he said he was, and you believe that there's nothing more important than your relationship with the Lord, then you should want your beliefs and your behaviors to line up with what the Bible teaches. That if you claim to be a Christian and you're not sure about that, well, then I would suggest you're not sure if the Bible is true. You might have a a loose belief in Christianity as kind of what you've always believed, but maybe you don't have that conviction. So I would say for the person listening who says, well, I don't know if the Bible is really authoritative for my life. I don't know if that should be my worldview. Well, this whole area of apologetics, we didn't really define it, but if someone's not sure what that means, it means how how you make a case for and defend the truth of Christianity. In other words, what good reason is there to believe that Christianity is true? There are a lot of great books that will help you to understand why there's good reason to to really know that the Bible is God's Word. I always recommend a book by my friend uh, Jay Warner Wallace called Cold Case Christianity. If you're just starting out on these questions, get that book, and it will help you start getting your your mind around, your thinking around what it would look like to know that the Bible really is reliable, that those gospel accounts truly tell us who Jesus was, what He claimed about reality, and all of those questions. So that's the first thing. If you're listening to this and you're like, yes, I believe that the Bible is God's word. Absolutely. Um, still, I would say you should study apologetics to know uh, yeah. these things so you can explain them to others. But I would say that worldview matters so much because those statistics that I gave earlier, 65% of people identify as Christians, but only 6% of people in America have a biblical worldview. That means there are a whole lot of self-identified Christians who don't actually believe what the Bible teaches. And within the evangelical church, they say that numbers about 21% have a biblical worldview. So it's not even just out there. It's in here. It's inside the church. It's 80% of the people sitting in the pew each week don't have a biblical worldview. So we should be concerned about that. If you're a Christ follower who says, yes, the Bible is God's word, we should be really concerned about the fact that the majority of Christians don't have a biblical worldview. Because when we don't, we're going to let secular, ungodly, fundamentally opposed ideas flow into our worldview that affects both our own relationship with the Lord, as well as our ability to be salt and light to others. Amen. Well, I said it twice. You landed the plane. That's exactly what I wanted today from this conversation. Your book really, um, it really made a difference for me. It's important. Um, we've done a lot to share it around. I'm grateful for your time today, Natasha. And what's next? What are you, what are you working on next for us? Well, um, I will start writing another book in the fall. So I'm kind of sketching that out right now. And in the meantime, I'm, uh, I have my podcast, the Natasha Crane podcast, where I talk about subjects like this and I'm planning to have you on. So we'll do a little swap in, in the near future. That'll be great. I'm looking forward to it and sharing your great work with my listeners as well. And I also have a new podcast that I'm doing weekly with my friend, Elisa Childers. She's a fellow author and speaker in these areas. So every Wednesday we have just a 15, 20, 
20 minute length uh, podcast together called Unshaken Faith. And in that podcast, we hit kind of these current events and how to respond. And then she and I are also connecting that to our Unshaken Conference, which we're at four different locations this year with Frank Turek speaking about all of these kinds of things. So we have one in May that's in Southern California, and we have in Nashville in November and uh, in September, a location that will be disclosed soon. So that's that's the bottom line of what's going on. A lot of stuff, but um, it's a it's a privilege to serve in some way. That's great. We'll put links to all those things for folks to get a hold of. Uh, friend, I can't again recommend highly enough. Uh, and Natasha's book, her podcast is great. We've had, of course, we've had Elisa Childers on the show too. And, um, uh, the show that they do together is, is important and valuable. And, um, can, can normal people come to your conferences? Is it, are they aimed at women? Or are they aimed at who, who can go to the <laughs> it, They're aimed at everyone. Yeah. It, it's a, it's just, it's really to equip Christians to be bold and be encouraged and to know that just because what you believe is different than what everyone else believes right now doesn't mean you're wrong. Normal again does not mean right. right. And so we hope to just kind of equip the church through that. So yes, for women, men, for, um, and we, at our next conference in, uh, Calvary Chapel, Tino Hills in May, they actually have uh, a whole group of students coming. So we have student tickets for that. So it really is for for anyone. That's great. Natasha Crane, thank you for your time. God bless you and your family. Thank you so much. It's been great. Wow. What an amazing conversation. I love that. I love the book. She's doing great work. And I just want to read you a little passage from the very last chapter of the book. She talks about how we can be people who bear the fruit of the Spirit. Listen, if there's any hope for our culture, if there's any hope for breaking the bondage of lies that are being told to our children, even from the first time they go to a public school and even from the first time they turn on social media, if there's any hope of us breaking out of this sort of assault of this culture and this secular age, Here it is. It's learning to be people who exude the Holy Spirit and the fruits of the Spirit because that's how we're going to be able to attract people to the power and and just the joy of living this faith-filled life that's going to break us free from all these cultural lies. And here it is. She writes this beautifully. I'm going to take you through what she says about how the fruit of the Spirit is what's going to it's what's going to basically break this cycle of secularism and get us back to a world where people are attracted to the truth. She says the fruit of the spirit to maintain its God given a distinctive shape rather than softening to an unrecognizable form in the pressure cooker of secularism. She wants She says, love remains a godly love rather than becoming one rooted in subjective feelings. Joy remains a godly joy rather than becoming one equated with circumstantial happiness. Peace remains a godly peace rather than becoming one stemming from worldly appeasement. Patience becomes a godly patience rather than becoming one that only bears with like-minded people and ideas. Goodness remains a godly goodness rather than becoming one defined by popular consensus. Faithfulness remains a godly faithfulness rather than becoming one tempted by the authority of the self. Gentleness remains a godly gentleness rather than becoming one that's indistinguishable from apathy. And self-control remains a godly self-control rather than becoming one that navigates according to a worldly compass of freedom and restraint. So keep reaching up as you faithfully do so. The differences in your believing, thinking, and living will remain an intact and convicting witness for the Lord, even when it seems the world is powerfully against you. Friend, Faithfully Different is one of those books that you need to have on your shelf. You need to buy it for your kids. You need to share it with your grandchildren. You need to talk about it and add it to the things that help you arm yourself against all the things that are happening in our culture right now that are trying to 
change what the truth is, trying to redefine the things that God has told us will lead us to the truth that sets us free. You can't change your life until you change your mind. And one of the most important aspects of changing your mind is to change it back to the truth because that, my friend, will set you free and it will help you to start today. Hey, thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the show so you automatically get every episode. And if you like the show, you'll love my weekly letter. Check out my writing at drleewarren.substack.com, drleewarren.substack.com. Get the free newsletter every week for my best prescriptions for becoming healthier, feeling better, and being happier through the power of faith and neuroscience smashing together via self-brain surgery, drleewarren.substack.com. And if you need prayer, go to the prayer wall at wleewarrenmd.com slash prayer. The theme music for the show is Make Us One by Tommy Walker, graciously provided for free by the great folks over at tommywalkerministries.org. Check it out and consider supporting them, tommywalkerministries.org. Remember, you can't change your life until you change your mind. And the good news is you can start today. I'm Dr. Lee Warren. I'll talk to you soon. God bless you, friend. Have a great day.